Hello friends, welcome back, or welcome, to the Seems Like Diet Culture podcast. My name is Mallory Page, I'm a registered dietitian, and I'm also the host of this podcast, which I created because I wanted to be able to talk about nutrition, wellness, fitness, body image topics from a non-diet lens. There's just so much information out there around these things that is riddled with diet culture. And when you're making a decision of how you want to incorporate something in your life or how you want to view it, I want you to have all sides so that you can really make the decision that works best for you. So in today's episode, we are going over a topic that I have wanted to cover since I ideated this podcast, which as of next week will be a year ago. Well, I I thought of the idea much earlier than that, but it will be a year from our launch. So I need to figure out what type of episode I want to do for a year of podcasting. How That's just crazy. Time is going by so fast. But you know what has not changed? Let me tell you a story. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know my cat named Otis because... You know, he's a main character. He likes to just get up all in my business. Okay, so today I came in to record this episode. He was sleeping on the couch, and I literally thought to myself, okay, I'm going to sneak away now and go into the closet, which is where I record, record the episodes, because if he knows that I'm in the closet, he is just so annoying, okay? He is purring so loud or biting the cords or he's like shuffling around or he's biting me. You just never know what you're going to expect. And obviously I love when he's purring, okay, just so that you know I'm a great cat mom. It's just that it gets picked up on the podcast sound. So maybe a little calming, but also a little bit disruptive. So anyways, I go into the closet, shut the door quietly, go to sit down and I recognize, oh my gosh, I forgot my water bottle. And these typically take me quite a while to record to make sure that they are perfection. So I knew I needed my water bottle. So I sneak back out. Guess who I see? Sitting right by the door. Otis, as I like to call him, Mr. Otis. I literally don't even know how this cat knew that I was going into the closet. I swear I could call him so intensely. I could beg for his attention when he's sleeping. I could go up and like pet him. He ignores me. He hears the slightest noise of the closet. He's in there. So I had to go out, grab his fluffy blanket that he likes so that I could put it over me so that he could burrow into it. And luckily he just stopped the extremely loud purring. So you're not hopefully picking that up. Oh my gosh. If you're a cat mom, you get it. That's a completely unrelated story for the day that I wanted to share to start off. Well, I actually didn't, I wasn't going to share it, but sometimes we just need a little intro moment before we go into the topic, which is orthorexia today. As I already alluded to, this is one I am really looking forward to, and I feel it could be extremely impactful for anyone to listen to. This isn't just for you if you feel like you could be struggling with orthorexia, but it's for anyone that just wants to have a deeper understanding of even wellness culture and how that's affecting orthorexia, just understanding how you could support a loved one, knowing the current research on this, protecting your peace and wellness culture, and so many other things. If you are new to this podcast, you may not know that my eating disorder that I struggled with was orthorexia. So this is one that's very near and dear to my heart as well. And I will have a small personal antidote that I'll add in at the end or that I'll sprinkle in throughout the episode. But overall, I want this to be very objective so that you can really understand more about it. But without further ado, let's just jump right into it and start with what orthorexia is. So orthorexia is actually a relatively newly recognized eating disorder that's beginning to affect more and more people. And I say recently recognized because It may have been around for longer than we realize, but eating disorders or people with eating disorders tend to be very private about their behaviors. And it was only within the last 20 years or so that clinicians started noticing 
the behaviors of orthorexia to be substantially different from traditional anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, and even just disordered eating. So the term orthorexia was actually first coined by Dr. Stephen Bratman, who is an MD, in 1996. So definitely very new within the scope of clinical practice. The word itself stems from Greek origins, which ortho means correct and orexia means appetite. This term has since gained gained traction amongst other professionals in the psychiatric and eating disorder world and is pretty widely known. I would say even a fair amount of people that I talk to that I'm going to call like a lay person, they're not in this field, have some type of familiarity with this, which I think would be very different even five years ago. So I think it's growing in popularity even just amongst people. According to the Center for Discovery, unlike individuals with anorexia nervosa who are obsessed with losing weight or preventing weight gain, individuals with orthorexia may not be obsessed with their weight, but they are obsessed with healthy eating. However, both of these populations have an underlying problem with self-control. I think it's important to note that in this definition or in, in what the Center for Discovery is sharing. Self-control does not mean, oh, I have no control because I want to eat sugar. It means that they are using the different habits that can show up for anorexia or orthorexia as a means of control in their life. So the primary concept that we have with orthorexia is an obsession with health that becomes so extreme, it begins to disrupt normal functioning of the mind and body. So for people who don't have a history of disordered eating, focusing on having a healthy diet usually won't disrupt their lives too much. But someone with orthorexia takes the need to eat healthy to an extreme, and it becomes very disruptive to them experiencing a normal life. They usually also become obsessed with exercise and sometimes their body too, even if it's just keeping their body at a certain level of being toned or strong. And therefore they engage in compulsive exercising because they have that obsession with health. Something that I feel is really important to note about orthorexia is that although there are signs and symptoms that can come up, which we're going to go over those in a second, it also presents very differently in every single person. And one of the main reasons for that is because everyone's version of health in general is different, but then you can imagine how someone that takes health to an extreme if they are focusing on specific rules or habits, that's going to look very different taken to the extreme than someone else with orthorexia that has an idea of health and habits that they think are best taken to an extreme. What I mean by that is that someone with orthorexia could become obsessed with the paleo diet and they think that the paleo diet is the ultimate form of health and they also think that HIT training is the ultimate form of health. So therefore, they take the paleo diet to the extreme. But there could be someone else that actually believes veganism is the ultimate form of health. So they take veganism to the extreme and they think yoga is the best way to be healthy. So they also do that to the extreme. So you can imagine how there are tons of renditions of this. And also, There are a lot of comorbid diagnoses that go along with orthorexia, not even just in the mental sense, which as you could imagine, many of those could be OCD, autism, anxiety, depression, sensory affective disorder, but also in the eating disorder realm. So someone that struggles with orthorexia may also struggle with anorexia or bulimia or binge eating. They can all correlate together, and a lot of that comes down to what that person's version of health looks like. When talking about orthorexia, it's also really important to discuss a clinical diagnosis because orthorexia is not currently listed in the DSM-5. So for those of you who don't know what the DSM-5 is, it's the fifth and most current edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders that is released by the American Psychiatric Association. 
The DSM is constantly being revised and they tend to release a new edition every five to seven years that is up to date on all of the current literature on mental disorders. So it's definitely possible that in the future they're going to add orthorexia and that will be included in DSM-6. But things like anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, and also other eating disorders, which we're not going to go into all the different eating disorders and their clinical diagnoses today, but I can in the future if you want, they are already included in this version, so this DSM-5. You may be wondering why eating disorders are included in the DSM-5 because it's a mental disorder manual, but eating disorders are actually classified as mental disorders. And fun fact, actually, it's not a fun fact at all. It's quite a sad fact, but fact that you may not know. Eating disorders are actually the most deadly mental illness of all mental illnesses. Pretty wild. So if you have questions as to why eating disorders are classified in this way, we could also definitely talk about that in another episode. There's so much discussion that could be had about it, but for the simplicity of this episode, we're going to leave it at that. That being said, the DSM is mainly a diagnostic tool, so we refer to this for clinical diagnoses, and it's often used for insurance purposes because when you can get an actual diagnosis, a lot of insurance companies are more willing or likely to cover any type of support that you may get. And then also when you're talking about eating disorders specifically, Sometimes specific diagnoses are required to be able to get into a treatment center or to have, again, that treatment center be covered by insurance. Again, we're not going to go into the DSM-5 and whether it's a good tool, if it's not a good tool, all of the systems that support or refute this, but I do think it's important to know and to remember that we are constantly learning about mental disorders literally every single day, and that's why the DSM is in constant revision. The main point that I want you to take away from this conversation about the DSM-5 is that just because something isn't in there doesn't mean it's not a real diagnosis. Things are, as we said, coming out in five to seven years since typically, And there are so many things that we discover every day. So just because currently orthorexia isn't specifically a diagnosis, that doesn't mean it's not real. And if you think that you are dealing with orthorexia and you're wanting to still get a clinical diagnosis, you will still get a diagnosis if you meet the criteria. It will just be under the category of unspecified feeding and eating disorders until there are new criteria that are developed for it. Orthorexia is starting to be widely recognized by many health professionals, and it's commonly seen in eating disorder treatment centers, so that's why I would not be surprised at all if in future versions of the DSM we started to see this, because I do think it would be really valuable to have those specific criteria and have a description for orthorexia in the way that we don't now, since it doesn't have its own category. But I will say, if you are to go to a healthcare professional that is well-versed in this stuff, they will be able to recognize the habits that you are presenting and connect it to orthorexia. And many times they can even make a note in your chart or they will speak to that. So, Just keep all of this in mind if you were ever trying to get diagnosed with this. Don't be discouraged if you go to someone and they don't give you the specific diagnosis because technically it's not a specific diagnosis right now. With all that being said, I do want to go into the signs and symptoms even though they are not technically in the DSM-5. These are the common things that we see that are recognized by eating disorder professionals and some doctors as well that are very well versed in working with or seeing patients with orthorexia. As a reminder, back to my disclaimer about how orthorexia presents differently for everyone, I am not saying that because you do one or multiple of these things, 
you have orthorexia. A lot of things that people may find themselves doing that can align with orthorexia may not be unhealthy for them, but at the same time, if you find yourself relating to a lot of these things, it would be worth thinking about how they're affecting you a little more critically. So in no particular order, being gluten-free without celiac diagnosis or allergy, showing an unusual interest in what others are eating, especially if you find yourself comparing or changing the way you eat in comparison to them, inability to eat a food that isn't pure or clean or up to your health standards, obsessively following health and lifestyle bloggers or influencers, obsessions about checking the ingredients of everything, veganism, vegetarianism, pescatarianism, adherence to any strict diet, especially ones that are considered health-related or maybe lifestyle-related but without flexibility around it, obsessions with exercise, obsession with avoiding foods that contain animal products, fats, sugar, salt, food dyes, and pesticides, obsessive concern with food and the development of consequences such as medical illnesses, obsession with consuming vitamins and minerals, an extreme limitation on food groups which may result in eating less than 10 ingredients, obsessive meal prepping, avoiding food prepared or bought by others, avoiding eating out, extreme feelings of guilt or shame when eating quote-unquote unhealthy foods, isolating oneself from others who do not hold the same beliefs around food, exercise, or body image, feelings of power and satisfaction when only consuming healthy foods. So those are all of the predictors that we can see from someone's habits or that we can ask them about, but there are some that more have to do with labs. So the main labs that we would see related to this would be decreased testosterone in males, GI problems such as constipation, bloating, or nausea, electrolyte abnormalities, including low blood potassium, sodium, and chloride, and kidney problems. So there's a lot of different things that can be a sign, and honestly, I feel like I could write down a list and we could spend five minutes going through all of the different signs because they can be so different for everyone, but that's a good starting point. And when we then talk about the symptoms, there are a lot of severe health complications that can come up from orthorexia. I feel like a lot of people don't believe that that's true, but malnourishment and protein deficiencies can very often come up. I know that this seems like the opposite of what you would think because these people are so obsessed with health, but the obsession with health and the rules they have are not always logic-based or very rarely they're logic-based. So they can find themselves really under-fueling or not eating enough of certain macro or micronutrients because of this. It can also cause harm to the kidneys, like I was talking about, and other organs, and is usually coinciding with other mental disorders, such as depression, anxiety, OCD, and even substance abuse. And these can all increase the mortality and morbidity associated with orthorexia. Now, if you're listening to this and thinking, mm, Mallory, I just like to eat healthy. I definitely am not having any of these extreme symptoms that you're listing. I totally get that. So to go past more of the clinical symptoms that can be harmful, there are also the mental symptoms that can be harmful. And yes, we talked about the mental disorder piece, but we don't often hear about the effect of being at this level of stress and how that then affects your body. So of course, Anytime that we have extremely stringent rules and inflexibility, it's going to increase our stress some. But when you pair that inflexibility with extreme guilt, desire for control to an extent that is debilitating, isolation from dynamics with friends or family, constant fixation mentally on what you're eating and how you're exercising, overstressing your body by exercising too much, all of those different things, this really can wreak havoc on your body. And it's really interesting how 
as you guys have probably come to understand through this episode, people with orthorexia, their main concern is often their health long-term, and yet they're putting themselves at a level of stress that is so unhealthy for their body that they're ultimately negating the health benefits that could even be coming from eating or moving or living in the way that they are. Plus, I will also say that there are a lot of people with orthorexia that get obsessed with macro counting or calorie counting just because of their desires for perfection and their need for control. And so, whether that's the case or not, these people can often find themselves living in bodies that are below their desired set point weight. I shouldn't say their desired set point weight. It's our body's desired set point weight. And whenever you're below your set point weight, it is wreaking havoc on your body. It's wreaking havoc on your hormones and it is not good for you. So that's another element that can come into play here. I mean, the amount of things that I could go through around orthorexia that have bigger picture connections to your health is honestly limitless just because I discussed this so much and I went through it myself. But I just want to make it very, very clear that orthorexia is not healthy just because these people are focused on health. Orthorexia is not healthy just because people are focused on health. I would have needed that repeated two times to me (laughs) when I was struggling with this. To go deeper into this, I want to share the current research around orthorexia. Because it's actually another reason why I'm convinced that it's going to end up in the DSM. There is already a fairly abundant body of research that exists studying orthorexia and also orthorexic behaviors. If you were to peruse through research articles, you would say, see everything from work that's been done to specify diagnostic criteria, research on professional athletes and how they're at a higher risk for orthorexia based off the degree of control they have to have over their diets, orthorexia being more prevalent in females, and even specific research on the prevalence itself. So what they found from prevalence studies are that between 1 and 7% of the population has a diagnosis for orthorexia. Although, as we understand from everything about the DSM, it's pretty hard to get accurate rates of this because, first of all, there's no specific diagnosis. Second of all, most people with orthorexia don't seek treatment. Third of all, the clinical implications are sometimes less clear than the other eating disorders like anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, etc. They've also found, though, through research that If they look at orthorexic behavior, between 21 and 57% of the general population exhibits at least one orthorexic behavior. To me, that statistic is pretty wild because I don't think that many people would identify with orthorexic behaviors. I think a lot of people think that behaviors that can fall under orthorexia are just normal or just healthy, but that statistic really proves how much higher the prevalence is than most people would think. Another thing to note that they have found in research is that orthorexia is known to lead to anorexia, and I also would say that the flip side can be true, although I did not find research on this anorexia can lead to orthorexia. I have discussed this with you guys before, but there is something I like to call a transfer of control that very often happens with disordered eating and eating disorders, where someone can go from exhibiting certain habits, such as an obsession with being skinny, an obsession with calories, eating diet-based foods, etc., to going into something like orthorexia. Maybe there's an obsession with being strong, an obsession with clean ingredients, quote-unquote, and anything else that they think aligns with that version of health. The best example of this that you will see all over social media is the entire strong, not skinny movement. And I'm not saying that that was specifically 
related to orthorexia when it was created or anything like that, but many of the people that you see sharing content like that are really sharing about how they went from having anorexia to having orthorexia or at least having anorexic type behaviors or restrictive type behaviors to obsessive type behaviors. And it's really easy for people to think that because they went from one or the other that it's actually them improving, but really you're just controlling different elements and really not giving up any control. So it's very detrimental regardless. This is really important to keep in mind when we talk about how to work through orthorexia as well, because although the way that you work through this eating disorder is very similar to how you work through other eating disorders, there are nuances to it that are important to keep in mind when trying to reach full recovery. So to initially start off with what's helpful for pretty much any eating disorder, you're going to want to seek the help of a psychotherapist because we want to work through the underlying feelings and triggers that are contributing to the eating disorder. And within that space, you're going to want to develop better coping skills and learn how to live life without striving for this type of perfection and control. So many people will be doing some type of cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy, potentially exposure therapy too. And if you're under 18, you may need to get your family involved in family therapy to address triggers created by the family or to have their support. A large part of recovery will be psychoeducation in which your professional informs you about your condition, raises awareness about the problems, and then helps to teach you evidence-based resources, techniques, tools, all of that good stuff. But to go along with that, working with a registered dietitian is also very encouraged because although all of the mental work that you're doing is going to help with behaviors, it's also important to have specific steps on how to work through those physical presenting behaviors with food. So having a dietitian a part of the treatment team will help to educate you on proper nutrition and work to change your eating habits. And also dietitians can be involved in that exposure therapy type of process. They can teach patients how to prepare foods in ways that they previously avoided, bring to light ways that they're restricting or still following orthorexic practices that they may not be aware of. And depending on the type of treatment you get, you may even be eating with a dietitian in, in a treatment facility or something along those lines. If at all possible, it is always best to seek professional help because this is so hard to work through on your own and any eating disorder is hard to work through on your own, but orthorexia especially is so ingrained in wellness culture that there is a lot of information out there that will reinforce your eating disorder voice and obsession around health practices. And if you don't have someone guiding you through how to look at things differently, it can be really hard. And also getting this help before you think you need it is one of the absolute best ways to prevent this from progressing from maybe just disordered habits or a less severe quote-unquote eating disorder, at least clinically presenting, to a more severe one. So often we tell ourselves, oh, it's not that bad, or I'm just having a hard time, I don't need professional help, or there are people so much sicker than me, my situation doesn't really count, or I'm not underweight, I'm just eating healthy so it doesn't really matter, or if I go through recovery, I'm not going to be healthy anymore and that's not something I want, or I use exercise for my mental health, so that's a good thing for me. I don't need to work on my relationship to these things. But even when you're trying to tell yourself all these things, it's they're lying to you. This shows you in itself that this is time to seek help because eating disorders, they take time to recover from. And they don't just go away on their own. And think about how it would feel to have the same eating disorder a year from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, and not having it go away and affecting your life for that long. 
right? And the longer you go with the eating disorder, the harder it can be to work through it. So even if there's just a little bit of a struggle, even if you don't think you have orthorexia, but you're just exhibiting some behaviors, now is definitely the time to seek help. With all of this being said, I know that not everybody can get professional help because of the very unfortunate barriers that we have to not only get support from therapists but and dietitians, but also get support from therapists and dietitians that understand eating disorders and more specifically orthorexia because a lot of people just don't get it. So I'll go through kind of actionable tips more towards the end of this episode. But as you would imagine, a lot of what you're doing is taking the habits that you believe are healthy and breaking them. And that can feel super uncomfortable, but that is a reality. If you think that you shouldn't be eating XYZ ingredient, you're going to incorporate that multiple times throughout the week or start once and build to twice and go to three times. If you think you need to work out X number of days, then you're going to reduce the amount of days that you're working out, etc., etc. If you feel like you're struggling with this too, or you don't know if you're struggling with this, Live Unrestricted is so effective in treating orthorexia. And even if you just want to book a consult, so if you if you apply, which the link is in my show notes, it will essentially, well, first, I'm not explaining this well. The link is in my show notes to go to the website and learn more about the course. If you apply, it will direct you to a free consult with me to determine if I think you're even a good fit and we can discuss some of these things. So just a little reminder. Now I kind of want to pivot though and talk more about the very slippery slope of orthorexia and wellness culture. I feel that we've been alluding to this the whole episode, but we need to dive into this because I truly believe that one of the big reasons why orthorexia has shot up in popularity, that doesn't even sound right, in prevalence is definitely the right word for that, is because of wellness culture and how it shows up in the media and on social media. It is so common for wellness influencers nowadays to really demonize certain food groups and display their way of eating and exercising as the right way. It is also really common for wellness influencers to prey on people's body image insecurities by hinting or alluding to the fact that they follow their lifestyle, and by doing so, it will result in looking a similar way to them, even though we know in reality that it is pretty much never, ever true because we all look different and have different genetics. So even if you could look similar to someone else, you're never going to look just like them. And I find that so many of these wellness influencers are also just sharing things in the most fear-mongering way. They act like you're going to die if you eat this one ingredient. And it's just so embarrassing to me to watch their content. I will not go on a rant, but I do want to talk about three big secrets that are happening in wellness culture and in the creation of wellness content that I think are very good to expose. First, it is very common for wellness influencers to become more and more extreme with their content over time because there is only so much wellness content that exists to live a balanced lifestyle. Think about how many influencers that you see out there that are trying to post and become big on sharing their balanced lifestyle. I mean, millions, probably more than that. And when we look online, we don't often gravitate towards that. We gravitate more towards extremes or things that stand out to us. So influencers will catch on to that. And once they kind of hit this dead end of feeling like my content looks like everyone else, or it's just not converting in the way that I want, they then run out of those kind of reasonable, sustainable lifestyle content ideas or stop posting them and then change it into more extreme topics. So what may have started is them saying, you know, life doesn't exist without balance of 
eating vegetables but then going out to eat or it's okay to take rest days or whatever else it may be soon turns into them saying, you know, all your vegetables need to be organic and those also need to be now bought to from the local farmer's market and those vegetables need to be in six meals a day and you are shortening your life if you don't have vegetables for one meal. I'm getting dramatic, but you get what I'm saying. And them relying on this type of fear-mongering extremist tactic does often get them more followers, but it comes at the expense of people's mental health and can lead them into things like orthorexia. There is one specific person I'm thinking of. I think her name is like Courtney or like Real Foodology or something like that. And she used to post, like, general wellness content, and then I don't know what happened, but the other day her information came up, and I was literally speechless at how extreme it was. And that happens so much more often than we think. That's just one example. The second secret here with wellness influencers is that they also tend to create that content specifically to get the attention not just from consumers but from brands as well. So we've discussed this on the pod before but something that can be easy to forget when we're consuming content is that every single person that is posting content is contributing to the fact that wellness is a for-profit industry So although someone may not go into creating content thinking, oh, I want to make money or I want to do X, Y, and Z with this or I want to work with brands, they may go into it because they love it. If that account grows enough or even if it doesn't, there is this point where they may want to start to monetize it or where they may recommend a product or whatever else it may be. And you have to remember that every single one of those things is contributing to this bigger wellness profit cycle. So if they post something that gets attention and then a brand notices that, that's also extreme, that person gets paid, then that brand paying that person to promote that product creates more people buying that product and that whole profit cycle can continue. Even if there's a person that is posting content that has nothing to do with the product, but it's them and their aesthetic morning routine with their clear straw and glass and their New Balance shoes and their set active matching set, that still makes you want to consume more and more. So remember that as you are looking through this content, all of it is contributing to this bigger cycle And I'm not saying every single influencer is sitting there just thinking about money, but it doesn't take away the fact that that is still a piece of the equation. Lastly, and probably the most dangerous, is the fact that the influencers themselves are often struggling a lot with disordered habits, mental health issues, and even orthorexia. Guys, I know I've shared this before, I think maybe three or four times, but I never feel like I can drive this home enough. The amount of people that you follow on Instagram that have messaged me before that they struggle, that have shared that they're dealing with binge eating disorder or that they feel out of control around food or that they still don't like their bodies is numerous. And I know that it's not every influencer's job to disclose everything they're dealing with, but I desperately want you to remember that these people are not immune to struggles with food, exercise, and body image just because they post about wellness on their page. Same thing with fashion, same thing with lifestyle. Just because you see someone post their greens and they say, these greens are the best. They helped me lose five pounds and I'm not bloated. That doesn't mean it's true. Just because you see someone say, counting macros works really well for me and it's not disordered for me. That doesn't mean that it's actually true. If you listen to my journey about my eating disorder, I mentioned the fact that there was an entire phase of three years 
where I was in denial about my habits and the fact that they were extremely disordered. I truly 1000% believed that what I was doing was healthy. And so it's not even influencers lying to their audience oftentimes. They're genuinely sharing what they feel and what they believe, but that does not mean it's not disordered. The denial phase is a very, very real part of the process. So yes, it is possible that they look like they are living this perfect, clean, pure, healthy, clean girl lifestyle, when in reality, they're actually miserable, or they're not happy, or they're suffering from a horrible eating disorder, or they have disordered habits, or they're in increased stress all the time, or they actually don't even do anything else other than just this influencer stuff, so their life isn't relatable for yours and the same habits that they're doing wouldn't work for your life. I would argue that this is the most dangerous situation because if the influencers themselves genuinely believe that what they're selling you is going to come across as more genuine, they're going to continue to do it. And this is super insidious because although they may believe in it, they may not recognize how damaging this is for other people. And that's the other side of the coin that I want to mention. They also could be doing this stuff and it could work for them. It's more of the exception, but that's true, right? There are people out there genuinely that could be engaging with a certain type of habit and for them it's healthy, but for you it's not. And of course, I know that I can't go out there and change the way that every single fitness and nutrition and wellness professional promotes their content and what they share. But I do want you guys to remember that just because someone's sharing something and it's not disordered for them does not mean that's a good fit for you. I feel this way all the time as I hear about 75 hard. Personally, I have a whole episode on this. I don't think anyone should be doing 75 hard, but there are always those people out there that are like, I did it and it wasn't disordered for me. And I'm sure there are people that can do that. I think they're in the minority for sure, but that doesn't mean that someone else should do it, especially not if you've ever struggled with food or exercise or body image. Last thing that I want to mention on this is that there are influencers, sadly, that are avoiding recovery, and they've built their whole brand and business around wellness, and they don't want to compromise their livelihood. I mean, let's just give the example of Freely the Banana Girl, right? Even if Freely at one point mentioned or recognized, I mean, that she has an eating disorder, she's not going to let that go, right? That's her whole brand. Same thing with Sarah's Day. I want to do a whole episode on Sarah's day. You guys probably know I have a lot of thoughts on her if you've watched me on TikTok and Instagram before. But Sarah's day in recent podcasts and years has admitted to the fact that she was dealing with disordered eating and disordered exercise and how unhealthy she was. And yet she's never addressed the fact that she was selling workout guides that were telling people to exercise as she was and promoting these habits because it likely would affect her brand. So she addresses in this very like, "Mm, yeah, I know that was unhealthy, but never really actually fully admits to it. So again, I want to do a whole whole episode on that. But hopefully through this, you can see how much of a slippery slope wellness culture can really become. You might have followed someone at first simply because you liked the way that they looked or you liked their fashion or you were hoping that buying their three-week quote-unquote clean eating program might help you look like them or become healthier. But in reality, they were really selling your just very disordered habits or habits that can easily become disordered or that aren't going to work for you, even if they work for someone else. And sure, maybe you didn't develop an eating disorder from this three-week thing that they sold you, but it left you with the thought in the back of your mind that this is the correct way of eating because that person looks great and she's doing it. So then you have these ideas planted in your mind that you're not eating the right way. Those ideas fester, they become rules, or they become thoughts in the back of your mind that can become problematic or make you feel guilty. And if you leave them long enough, unquestioned, at the same time as you are bombarded with more and more wellness content all over your feed, it's really only a matter of time before you can start developing those unhealthy habits. 
I hope that this makes sense and doesn't feel like I'm being accusatory of all wellness content because that's not my intention. You know, I'm not trying to say that all wellness content is bad, that every wellness influencer is ill-intentioned or struggling with an eating disorder. None of that is true. And I am not trying to be extremist with these viewpoints, but it is very rare that people bring up the dark side of wellness. That sounds so extreme, but you get what I'm saying. And so I want to be the one that tries to highlight these things and be realistic about it. I mean, guys, I talked about this some in my The Epidemic of Disordered Eating and Influencers episode, but I started my original Instagram. It's not the one that I have now. This was in 2015 when I was struggling with an eating disorder. And thank the Lord, Instagram was so different back then. There were no stories. There was barely the way to even like comment back to other people's comments. And there wasn't a lot of engagement that you could really do with people to share. But even so, ugh, the stuff I was sharing was so toxic and I just had no idea that I was so deep into an eating disorder. I genuinely thought, as I said, that I was being healthy, which is so wild to me thinking back. So just please think critically about what you see from people online and in, even when you're talking with someone in person, it's not just online that this happens. I actually took to my Instagram to ask you guys some thoughts, experiences, etc. on orthorexia. And I wanted to share some of what came up. So Allison said, I feel like so many people don't recognize it as an illness. Mara said, feeling anxious about buying and eating processed food from the grocery store. Hannah says, it defeats the purpose of what you're trying to do because it creates so much stress. Julia shares that she started out more orthorexic, focusing on clean ingredients, organic, even going vegan, and then it transitioned into anorexia where I didn't care about the ingredients, just low cows. Olivia explains, the obsession with sticking to a strict schedule and routines is so stressful. Brian says, not enough talk about this on the male side. I so agree. I actually think that orthorexia is probably way more prevalent in men than we know because I don't think a lot of men recognize that what they're doing could become orthorexic in their tendencies. Ronnie says, it's so normalized and encouraged in our society. It makes me so angry and sad. Mia shares, it's crazy how fine the line is between discipline and orthorexia. It gets so blurred. I so agree with this. And I'm going to talk about this in the ways to work through this section next. Jamie shares, addicting feeling of superiority further fueled by validation of others. And this is so much so where the perfectionism piece can come in. That was a big piece for me. Although it's embarrassing to admit, I really did think like, I'm so much more disciplined than everybody else. I'm so much healthier than everyone else. Like no one can do what I do. Embarrassing to admit. Yes, but it's true. Amy says, it's really hard to see it while you're in it because society at large deems it okay. Jenna shares, or, oh, this is a question. We'll go back to those. The hardest thing was to break out of my identity as the healthy one because people thought that I was disciplined, but I was just obsessed with perfect eating. Aliza says, the road from a restrictive ED to orthorexia. Yes, that's exactly what we were talking about. Ugh, oh, did you hear that? Back to Otis. He just came out of his blanket cave and then has already started biting the cord. That is so cute of you. Please stop. Someone else says it often gets overlooked as an ED. I could justify restricting by saying I was healthy. Ava shares, I love this topic. It's so apparent in many people without them even realizing it. Jen says, I feel like it's on the rise again, being seen a lot of client and patients with it. Maddie shares, it's totally obnoxious the way it's glorified. And Sam says, it's so hard to break free from when society often embraces and celebrates these quote-unquote healthy behaviors. 
I always love reading your guys' thoughts because not only do they mirror so many of my own, but they also bring perspectives or experiences that I haven't gone through or I haven't even thought of too. So I really always appreciate you guys sharing. If you ever want to share your thoughts, you can always send me a, like do a submission on the website, but I typically ask on Instagram. So now that we've gone through some of those explanations and talked about everything that's been in this episode, I want to share a little bit more about just my goal in sharing all of this. This is really just to teach you and educate you on this topic and on how wellness culture and society affects this. The truth is, so often we are just not aware of the fact that we're falling down this very slippery slope with orthorexic habits or with obsession with health. And then it can be too late. I mean, that was my journey 100%. I just did not recognize early enough and it completely changed my life. And although I can be grateful for... Okay, do you hear Otis? Otis? Dude, get out. Come on. Oh my God, I cannot. You are so annoying. Back to what we were saying. (laughs) Even though now I can understand, you know, and and try to be grateful for why it happened, it, it really did take away so much of my experiences, my happiness. It affected all of the mental disorders that I was experiencing outside of that. And it was just a miserable way to live. So when you're looking at wellness content, and even more so when you're thinking about how to recover from this, there's multiple things that I want to think, want you to think about. So let's start with looking at wellness content, because I think that a lot of times looking at wellness content is then what leads to the slippery slope that is orthorexia. It's good to ask yourself these questions. Number one, is this person qualified to be giving me this information? And this isn't just saying, oh yeah, this person is a doctor or they're a dietitian or they're a therapist, right? And yes, I even am saying a dietitian. Just because Otis. Okay, <laughs> we're all fixed. Just because someone has a credential doesn't mean they know what to say in this topic, but especially if they don't have a credential. So what do I mean by this? If someone is an MD but they don't have any experience with eating disorders or they've not done any research about it, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should listen to them when they talk about orthorexia. If someone is a dietitian but they specialize in weight loss, you probably shouldn't be talking to them or listening to their content, especially if you feel like you're starting to get health obsessed or even if that dietitian is super health-oriented, right? I could go on and on. I'm just trying to say that you really need to think critically about not just if that person is credentialed, but also are they sharing something that is helpful to me? Number two, are they the only ones promoting this information? This, I feel like, comes up all the time. I will just see the most random wellness claims, and it is exhausting. If someone is the only one promoting this, or if you don't see it often, or if you've never seen someone that you've considered to be respected in the field talking about it, do not listen to this. Number three, are they making paranoid claims against the government, regulatory bodies like the FDA or USDA? I, this is, I'm not trying to get too deep into this conversation, but guys, it's really important not to just listen to these people that seem to be criticizing every single thing about our food system. There are totally shortcomings to their food system, but that does not mean that every single ingredient that's, did you know that this is cleared by the FDA, but not in Europe, right? Like not every single one of those things that they're trying to convince you of are true at all. Number four, are they making extreme claims? Number five, are they demonizing one particular ingredient, especially common ingredients, or saying that you should avoid those at all costs. Anyone that says you should avoid something at all costs or that this one thing is going to kill you, no. Number six, I can't remember the number. Anything that you feel like doesn't make you feel good as you look at it. Now, I'm not saying that every single thing we consume has to be directly 
feel good information. But at the same time, if you're watching someone, whether it be a influencer, a doctor, or a dietitian, and every time you're watching their content, it makes you judge yourself and question how you interact with food and exercise and body image, that is not a good person to follow. Please give yourself permission to unfollow, or even if there's someone in your life that you feel like makes you question yourself that you follow on Instagram, then feel free to mute them. You know, they're not going to know. And then you don't have to be exposed to that. Now, we went over more about how to work through orthorexia in the sense of going to a professional. But how would you start to work through this if you were just genuinely dealing with habits that you thought were maybe a little health obsessive? Well, I would still suggest talking with someone if you can, but if you don't have the ability to do so, or if you want to do a little bit of self-inquiry and then reach out to someone, I would start to write down all of the things that you do with food and then how they make you feel. And then also ask yourself, are these things contributing to me feeling my best in every aspect of my life. So for example, you may think that working out X number of days a week is the best for your health. Maybe that's because whenever you take a rest day or a certain number of rest days, it creates stress for you. Or maybe that's because you saw something online. But whenever you actually move that many days, you feel really tired or it infiltrates into your social events in a way that is quite isolating, or any other number of things, that does not mean that just because you saw that stat online, or because your mind is telling you that you shouldn't take rest days, that that is healthy for you. And that's the thing about orthorexia that is hard. It's not saying that it's bad to eat nourishing foods, It's saying that by obsessing about eating those foods and not being able to have flexibility to eat other things or feeling guilt whenever you eat other things, that that is bad for you. So that's a big suggestion that I would say. And then as I already kind of mentioned earlier, it's really going through and consciously breaking those rules, just defying patterns with food and exercise and body image. But the other thing that I want to touch on is what Jamie was saying in her and what she submitted about orthorexia, which is the discipline and perfectionism and control piece of it. The thing about orthorexia is it is so related to all of those physical ways that things are manifesting, but at the same time, it is definitely fueled by your own mindset, superiorities, complex that you can feel, And it's very addictive, I think, to be getting this validation. And it's also very satisfying to feel as if you have an identity that's really clear that many people are very complimentary of. So that healthy or fit friend identity that many people with orthorexia take up or clean eater or whatever else it may be is something that often holds them to this place. And that's why psychotherapy is so valuable in this circumstance because it can be hard to work through this on your own. But a big piece of working out of this outside of even just the physical habits with food and exercise is the breaking of mental habits such as perfectionism at large, such as adding in joyful activities that are not just exercise or eating a certain way. It's tapping into the things that make you you outside of wellness. And this can be a really painful process for people because of the fact that they have to, you know, talk to people about the fact that they're going to eat foods that they may not have eaten in the past. Or they're going to change the way that they're in the gym or, you know, so many different things that come up that make this something that is a lot deeper than just the food, you know? 
So, oh my gosh, guys, I think Otis is just telling me that this episode needs to be over because I keep trying to put him out and he keeps scratching, but then when I let him back in, he keeps jumping everywhere, biting the cords and doing everything. So what is a girl supposed to do in this scenario? Good news is this episode is closing out. There is so much that I feel we could have gone through in this episode. So I was trying to keep it concise. And yet, of course, we're already at the hour. I definitely think that there could be part twos to this episode or even just different areas that we just explore in this. So, for example, the anorexia to orthorexia pipeline or veganism and its correlation to orthorexia and so on and so forth. If you guys want any of those episodes, as always, I would love to hear. You can submit an episode request on my website. There is a link that I always have in the show notes that you can utilize. If you are feeling like you may be struggling with orthorexic habits or you identified with a lot of the things in this episode, I would definitely encourage you to, number one, seek help if you feel like you're resonating with those symptoms that I, or those signs that I discuss. Number two, if you feel like you're more on the disordered eating spectrum, definitely apply to Live Unrestricted. That would be potentially an amazing place for you. But as I said, we do a free consult to make sure that it's a good fit for you. And if you just want any support, you have questions on this, please feel free to reach out to me. My Instagram's always linked down below. And I really hope that this episode was helpful. I'm so appreciative of you guys being here. I will see you back here next week.